0: Our New Testament reading today is uh, taken from Paul's epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 8 to 14. The Apostle Paul says, O no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. And we'll move to our gospel reading. We're going to stand for the reading of the gospel. And the reason that we stand at our gospel reading is to remind ourselves that all scripture points to the birth, the, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's a way to honor the Lord in scripture. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 13. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent his disciples, two of them, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Micah, come on forward.
1: Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to gather together on this first Sunday of Advent to remember the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son to us so that we might be reconciled to you and brought into your holy light. And now, Lord, let the the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. When John told me that this was the passage that I was gonna be preaching on, I was a little bit confused. I thought, I'm preaching on December 2nd, right? Not on April 14th, it's not already Palm Sunday. (laughs) Um, But then I realized how much sense it actually made. At this time of year, we tend to think of Christ as a helpless babe in a manger. And although this image is important, as it is right to remind ourselves of Christ leaving his place of honor at his father's side and condescending to us as an infant, it is also important to remind ourselves why he came. This passage begins with a display of the deity of Christ as he prophesies about events that are to come. He tells two of his disciples, go into the village in front of you And immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now it's understandable if the disciples were confused at this or even a bit apprehensive of carrying out Christ's command. Which of you would feel comfortable with going to a nearby village, walking up to a donkey and her colt that did not belong to you, untying her and bringing them out to the city gates? Would you not be confused at such a request? Charles Spurgeon writes that to stand questioning is not for the messengers of our king. It is their duty to obey their Lord's orders and to fear nothing. He goes on to say that the two animals would be willingly yielded up by their owners when the disciples said, the Lord hath need of them. Nay, he would not only give them up, but straight away he will send them. Once the colt was brought to him, the text says that the disciples placed their cloaks on it as a sort of makeshift saddle, placed Jesus onto the the donkey and led him into Jerusalem with a procession following him, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they're laying their cloaks and palm branches along the road in front of him as a sign of respect and honor for their anointed one. And there are multiple times like this, where Christ announces to us who he is, or shows us a new aspect of who he is. At his baptism, we see him announce the beginning of his ministry. At the wedding of Cana, we see him show himself as a worker of miracles. At his first recorded sermon, in which he reads the scroll of Isaiah and utters the words, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, we see him reveal himself as the Messiah, or the Anointed One when we see him healing the sick, driving out demons, and forgiving people of their sins, he is revealing to us his deity. And now, as we see him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, we see him reveal himself as our coming king. This triumphal entry was done in order to fulfill that which which was prophesied by Zechariah in Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The passage seems to paint a picture of a large procession and quite a commotion as Jesus enters Jerusalem. It even goes to so far as to say that the whole city was stirred up. And rightly so. Even though the people were confused as to exactly who Jesus was, there was no mistaking that his entrance was anything less than something of extreme importance. Some believed him to be only a prophet from Nazareth, others, the Messiah, or someone that would bring them military victory and deliver them from their oppression by the Romans. But we can safely assume that no one fully understood that his true purpose in coming to Jerusalem on that Passover was to offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. Indeed, his triumphal entry was more than just the announcing of a coming king. It was also the presentation of the Passover lamb. In his commentary, Matthew Henry writes, the Passover was on the 14th day of the month, and this, that is the day of his triumphal entry, was on the 10th, on which day the law appointed that the Paschal lamb should be taken up and set apart for that service. On that day, therefore, Christ, our Passover, who was to be sacrificed for us, was publicly showed, so that this was the prelude to his passion. After entering the city, Jesus went up to the temple of God. In verse 12, it says, that he drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. In John 2, verses 13 13 to 17, a similar cleansing of the temple occurs. Now, some biblical scholars believe that these are, in fact, one and the same event, simply recorded at different times in the different gospels, and perhaps John is just combining similar events and miracles together to make a less chronological account of the ministry of Christ, and more of a categorical one, as we know that chronology is not always of utmost importance in the Jewish literature. However, other scholars believe that this purifying of the temple happened on at least two occasions. Once just after the wedding at Cana, and again during Passion Week. So just imagine this. A mere two years earlier, Jesus had driven out the money changers and those selling livestock and rebuked them for their desecration of his father's temple. And now, as he nears the end of his earthly ministry, when he enters into the temple to join in worship with the pilgrims, he sees the very same thing occurring. How disheartened and disappointed would this have made him. This sadness quickly turned into a righteous anger, fueled by the zeal that Christ possessed for the right worship of his father. And those around him quickly saw this Lamb of God become a lion who was roaring with rage. The text describes him as overturning the tables and and pulling the seats out from under those selling doves. This is one of the very few times that we see such a vivid display of Christ's anger, and it is for good reason. Some interpret this passage as Christ taking a stand against capitalism, or against the temple tax, or against the exploitation of the poor, as the cost of doves could sometimes be up to 50 times more inside the temple than outside. So there is no doubt that usury and extortion was going on, and we know that Christ cared for the poor, so we know that his heart went out to them. But that is not Christ's main motivation for this cleansing. Rather, he is taking a stand for the right worship of his father. You see, this outer court, called the Court of the Gentiles, was a a place where God-fearing Gentiles, because they were not allowed inside the temple, could come to pray and to worship. As the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 56, verse 7, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. And Jesus here is showing his love for all people. Can you imagine going to church and trying to pray and worship while an entire marketplace surrounded you? Christ saw this and took it upon himself to correct the situation. By doing this, Calvin says, that he declared himself to be both king king and high priest, who presided over the temple and over the worship of God. He declared himself king, of course, by entering the city on the colt. And now, by his driving out of those selling and buying in the temple, he declares himself to be our high priest and the purifier of the worship of God. I'd like you to turn now to Hebrews chapter three, starting in verse one. for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Christ, our great high priest, has more authority than even Moses. Jesus being God's own son, shares in the business of his father and is thus charged with the upkeep of his father's house. Turning back to Matthew 21, in verse 13, Jesus, speaking of his father's house, and by extension, his house, rebukes those responsible for the desecration, saying, you've turned this place into a den of thieves, and by doing so, prevented the children from worshiping and from praying. This here is such a clear display of the deity of Christ as he is taking responsibility for the preservation of his father's house. And Calvin also speaks of this in his commentary saying, this ought to be observed, lest any private individual should think himself entitled to act in the same manner. That zeal indeed by which Christ was animated to do this ought to be held in common by all the godly, but lest anyone under the pretense of imitation, should rush forward without authority, we ought to see what our calling demands and how far we may proceed according to the commandment of God. If the church of God have contracted any pollutions, all the children of God ought to burn with grief. But as God has not put arms into the hands of all, let private individuals groan till God bring the remedy." Now, this is not to say that we should never speak up or to never take action when we see a blatant perversion of the gospel or a complete desecration of the worship of God. But we should at least be cautious and not think too highly of ourselves. And we also must assess our motives. Are we doing this out of selfish gain? Or are we doing this because we are truly burdened by the inappropriate handling of the gospel? Again, Christ's motivation is not to take a stand against the selling of doves and lambs, for these were required for the sacrifices in accordance with the law and could often not, not be brought by Jeru- uh, to Jerusalem by the pilgrims, as they may have become blemished along the way or would simply have been too difficult to transport. It's not like the poor would just travel with two turtle doves stuffed into their pockets. <clears throat> Christ is also not taking a stand against the money changers, as they were also necessary so that people could pay the temple tax, which was also required by the law. But what he's taking a stand against is on the location of these activities. What Christ is saying is, take your livestock, take your banks, take your marketplace, and take it across the street. Historically, the money changers and merchants set up along the slopes of the Mount of Olives. And this was fine. Before they moved into the outer courts and before the merchants began to inflate uh, the prices of the doves and lambs, the pilgrims would come in, exchange their money to the currency of Jerusalem in order to pay their temple tax. They would purchase their lamb or perhaps two pigeons if they were too poor to afford a lamb. The Gentiles would be free to use the outer court to be taught by the rabbis and would be able to pray and to worship. But now... For the sake of convenience, the money changers and merchants have moved these activities into the house of prayer, and by doing so, turned it into a den of robbers. And we must be wary of this, to be cautious as to not bring things into the house of God that do not belong. God is particular about the function of his church here on earth, and if we begin to drift from the preaching of the gospel and from the right worship of our Lord, then we strain to dangerous territory. Throughout this passage, Christ has showed himself to be our coming Messiah and our coming King. And unlike many of the kings of old, he is, revealed to be, he is revealed to be the one who purifies the worship of God and by doing so, declares himself to be the high priest of a new covenant, one where he will offer himself up as our Passover lamb. Oh Lord, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be our Passover lamb and to die for our sins. Father, give us a love for the right worship of you and give us the same zeal for your name that Christ had. Lord, help us to put business concerns and the distractions of daily life outside the door of the sanctuary to come into this place with the sole focus of worshiping you and giving glory to your name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.